pray with me. Father in heaven, we come now to continue to seek your face, now to hear from you. I pray you would speak to us, that your word would have its perfect work in us, that we might have hope. Father, I pray that as this word comes, that all hopelessness is banished from our hearts, and hope is birthed and grows. And this I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Please turn to Hebrews in chapter 6. I want to read verses 13 through 20. Hebrews in chapter 6, please. Hebrews 6 and verse 13. Hear the word of God. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that... By two unchangeable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now earlier, in the passage we've considered for the last month, Uh, the author of Hebrews introduced a phrase, and it's this, the full assurance of hope, that sense of certainty that all the things that belong to salvation are ours, forgiveness of sins, justification, uh, declared righteous by God, accepted by Him, adopted uh, into His family, that we will be able to persevere to the end, that God will hear our prayers, that the Holy Spirit's at work in us producing the very character of Christ in us, that God rules and reigns in such a way that because we are His children, that He will manage everything so that it works out for good. Uh, He's concerned about, as we confessed earlier, even every hair in our head, even the minutia of our lives. And He will work that together for good. He promises that we will be in a community of people uh, who believe and a part of that community, uh, both visible and invisible, both we can see and fellowship with now, but also attached to all those who before and after and for all of eternity will belong to him. And he promises that when we die, that he will receive us in his presence with great joy, that he will not judge us as our sins deserve, but rather receive us pardoned, forgiven, justified, holy, blameless in His sight. That's this full assurance uh, of hope. And, and He says that He desires that we have this full assurance of hope, if you'll notice in verse 12, so that, if you don't have a so that in your particular version, you should at least have a that. But so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. In other words, this full assurance of hope is given to us so that we won't be sluggish 
but rather live by faith and patience. You see, the author of Hebrews knows of no reason why we shouldn't have this full assurance of hope. Uh, And he isn't afraid at all that if he secures us in our salvation, that we'll become lazy. And then we'll think, well, it really doesn't matter how I live because now I have it. It's given to me. It's secure. He doesn't know anything of that because for him, having this full assurance of hope leads to a life not of sluggishness but of earnestness and and zealousness and passion so that we'll get on with it and live by faith and patience. This point that sometimes having too much assurance can cause us to be sluggish has been one that's been... uh, a heresy in the church for a long time. Um, so let me read to you from an old book. This isn't an old book. It's a new book, but it's an old, an old author dead. 1854, he wrote this, 150 years ago. It's a book called Sound Christian Doctrine by William D. Smith. I like the um, subtitle. It's Or, The Confession of Faith. That's the Westminster. The Confession of Faith in Harmony with the Bible and Common Sense in a series of dialogues between a Presbyterian minister and a young convert. So this book is written as a dialogue between a new Christian and this minister. And the new Christian asks this question, he says, but will it, that is this whole idea of having full assurance, but will it not have a tendency to make the Christian feel secure and relaxed his efforts to advance in holiness, to know that his salvation is certain and unalterably fixed in the purpose and good pleasure of God? The minister responds like this, This is long, so listen, but you'll like this. This will help you. He says, It's often urged by the enemies of the doctrine of full assurance that it's a dangerous doctrine. It is not uncommon to hear them say that if the doctrine be true, anyone may live as he pleases. I once heard a preacher say, If I believed such a doctrine, I would care nothing about growth in grace or living a holy life. But such objectors forget that if they speak according to their feelings, they give strong evidence that they're strangers to the love of God and cast a severe reflection upon true faith. Here's his illustration. He says, Suppose a father, when about to settle his inheritance upon his son, is told that it would be dangerous to do so, lest when the son should know that all was securely his, he would treat his father unkindly. What severe reflection could he cast upon the son? And what mournful evidence it would be of the son's entire selfishness and the want of love to his father to hear him say that if his father would fix the inheritance securely in his hands, he would not care how he treated him. Just such is the evidence that the professed Christian gives of his love to God, who says that if once he felt sure of heaven, he would not care how he lived. I admit that it would be dangerous to make heaven sure to such. Whether it would be dangerous or not for a father thus to settle the inheritance upon upon his son would depend altogether on the nature of the son's feelings towards him. If they were altogether selfish, it would be dangerous. But if the son truly loved his father, it would increase his filial attachment to know that his father had done so much for him. The more he would give the son, the more the son would love him. So if a Christian has true love to God, we need not fear to tell him how much God has done for him. The more he sees of the love of God, the more his own heart will be warmed with the heavenly flame and he'll desire the more to be conformed to his image. I think it will be admitted that it is the experience of every Christian that the brighter and firmer his hopes are of heaven, the more he desires to be made ready for it. And just in proportion as faith is to him the certain evidence of things not seen, he presses with eagerness to the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. 
The doctrine of full assurance then to a true Christian is one of the greatest incentives to growth in grace and everyone upon whom it has a contrary effect has much reason to doubt the reality of his own faith. His love to God cannot be sincere. Did you get that? And so the author of Hebrews, knowing that, agreeing with that, because he agrees with it, uh, is saying the more we know about what Christ has done, the more certain we are of it, the greater our hope will be. And the greater our hope will be will mean that we'll live zealously, earnestly, in faith and patience. That's what he's saying. Verse 11, And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. And you see, that's exactly the M.O. of the author of Hebrews. Yes, he's outlined great warnings. He's warned against being uh, dull of hearing and not going on to maturity. He's warned about drifting. He's warned about neglecting this great salvation. He's warned about the deceitfulness of sin and having a hard heart. And he's talked about the consequences of those, the eternal consequences of those. But he doesn't leave it there because he knows if he does, we'll primarily only be afraid. So then he goes on to tell us about all that Christ has done so that he'll build up our hope so that we can be fully assured that all that God promises will be true in the context of of our lives, and that will spring us on to live just like those who, through faith and patience, inherit the promises. Now, last Sunday, you remember, we sort of unpacked that little expression, faith and patience. And, and, and I asked the question, why does it take faith? And most certainly, why does it take patience in the, lives of a, in the life of a believer in order to inherit these promises? And remember, we, 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 we set the answer out like this by first saying, that faith is necessary for salvation. And secondly, that faith secures hope. And thirdly, that hope is necessary for patience. And fourthly, that patience is necessary in the context of the Christian life because of the nature of the life to which we've been called. And fifthly, that that's borne out in the lives of all those who've inherited the promises. And we said, of course, faith is necessary for salvation, meaning that we are not saved by our own works, by our own merits, by trusting in ourselves, but by casting all that aside and trusting instead upon Christ and what he's done, not what we've done, but what he has done. That's the only way of salvation. So faith is necessary for salvation. But once faith comes, it breeds hope. It secures our hope, this anticipation that all that God promises will be ours. Faith is forward-looking. It's, it's anticipating the good that is to come. And once one believes in Jesus, that's one's anticipation. Oh, we get a lot now. We're, we're justified. We are adopted into God's family. Uh, His Spirit comes within us as a deposit, guaranteeing all that's to come. And we begin to see the fruit of the Spirit at work in us, we begin to see the kingdom of God growing in our midst, but yet we know that this isn't heaven, that this isn't the new earth, that everything doesn't reflect Christ at this point. We're still awaiting that in the context of our own lives, in the context of the earth, in the context of other people. And so we must believe that it's going to come. Faith grabs hold of it. Hope 
anticipates it. Faith is sure of that which is not yet seen, that which is hoped for. So faith breeds this hope. Hope is necessary for patience. Because patience, you remember, is the will and ability to wait for something without complaining. That means that we must be sure it's going to come, we must trust that it's on the right timetable or schedule, and thirdly, that whatever comes is worth the wait. And that's true because of the great promises of God of what's to come. It's worth the wait. And you see, this patience and faith is necessary because of the life to which we've been called. We've been called to live now with this deposit of the Spirit working in us in anticipation of the culmination, the fruit of what is to come when Christ returns, when there will be no more poverty, no more injustice, no more tears, no more dying, when our bodies will be whole and will not die and will not deteriorate, and when everything that we see in the context of the new earth will reflect Jesus. And he says, that's coming. And there And I want you to trust me even though you're living in a world that doesn't look like that. And not only that, that much of this trusting and much of this patience uh, is called forth in the midst of of pain. Might be in the midst of persecution. Might be in the midst of physical pain, relational and emotional struggle and pain. Economic difficulties. He's saying, I want you to trust me. I want you to believe And I want you to anticipate, without complaining, I want you to have hope that this good is really going to come. And so we must live by faith, we don't see it yet, and hope, knowing that it's going to come, desiring it's going to come, willing to wait. And that's the nature of our lives. And I said that that's borne out in the lives of all those who, by faith and patience, inherit the promises. We looked at one example of a of a psalmist situation last week, plus another dead saint. And this week, we want to follow along with the agenda of the author of Hebrews because he gives us an example, and that is Abraham. Notice verse 13. He says, For when God made a promise to Abraham. You see, Abraham is one who lived by faith and patience. Uh, Notice um, in verse 15 it says, And thus Abraham, having patiently waited obtain the promise. And so here's one, no less than Abraham, and if you're going to write to a group of people named Hebrews, uh, Abraham's kind of your trump card. Uh, You know, if it's good enough for Abraham, then it's good enough for anybody called Hebrews. If Abraham doesn't work, he can use Moses, maybe David, but Abraham is really the one you want to go after. And so he does. He says, listen, Abraham lived just this way, and he inherited at least one of the promises of God. We know that in his lifetime... Abraham didn't obtain all the promises because they really would require not only the first coming of Jesus, but the second coming of Jesus in order for them all to be fulfilled and obtained. But he did obtain this one, and he did it by faith and patience. Turn quickly to Genesis in chapter 12. We see the first encounter that God has with a man named Abraham. He'll change his name to Abraham. And this is one of the most surprising, at least to me, passages in all the Bible because he he just sort of appears. You you get a glimpse of him at the end of chapter 11 in Genesis just in terms of his his parentage. But but all of a sudden, God 
picks him out of the crowd of all the people and, and he makes these incredible promises to him that have never been made to anyone else, it seems, like this, other than Jesus. Verse 1, Now the Lord said to Abraham, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abraham went out, as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abraham was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And so here's the 75-year-old man. Uh, we know little of him, of nothing, before then. And God comes upon him and says, I'm going to do this for you. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make your name great. Uh, uh, anybody who curses you will be cursed. Anybody who blesses you will be blessed. Their whole relationship with me will depend on how they treat you. And uh, through you, all the nations, all the families, all the peoples of the earth will be blessed. And then we come upon, upon uh, God speaking to Abraham again in Genesis 15. Turn there in verse 1. And after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision. Fear not, Abraham, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. In other words, God is saying, listen, I'm going to protect you. I'm your shield. And you'll have all that you need. Your reward will be great. No doubt thinking, not only in the context of possessions, but in the context of descendants, his great reward. Verse 2, But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. In other words, he's saying, I don't have any kids, so my reward doesn't seem too great at the moment. In fact, the one who's set up to inherit all my stuff isn't even my own child, biologically, but he's my chief servant, and that's just the way it'll go. He'll get it all because there isn't anybody else for whom it should go. And then verse uh, 4, And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir, your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you're able to number them. Meaning, there's so many stars up there who could count them. That's going to be your descendants. So shall your offspring be. Verse 6. And he, that is Abram, believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. In other words, he was declared at that moment righteous. Not because of anything that he had done, but because he believed. And so his salvation was indeed by grace through faith. Then verse 7. And he, that is God, said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans uh, to give you this land to possess. Now that's the beginning of something that's about to occur that's amazing. Because that's the very opening to a covenant that God is about to cut to make so that his promise to Abraham can be confirmed. It's as if God was saying, I've given you my word. Now I'm going to really give you my word in a way that will convince you because these covenants were very common in the days of Abraham, just the same as sitting down with our lawyers and signing a contract is with us, except much more solemn. And I don't know if Abraham gets it right at the beginning because he asks a question that's consistent, however, with what God is doing here to seal this promise. Verse 8, he's, but he said that as Abraham said, Oh, Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? 
mean, convince me. You've promised me. You, you've stated in this one sentence as if you're going to make this covenant with me. But, but will that convince me? How will I know? Verse 9. He said to him, bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid them each half over against the other. But he didn't cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. And this was the beginning again of this covenant. And, and, and the way that people would make these solemn vows to each other in covenants would be to ratify those, that promise by taking an animal and cutting it in half, sort of this way, you know, long ways, I guess you would say, and lay the pieces down, one across from the other. And then the tradition was that they each, the members of this agreement, would walk between these pieces kind of in a figure-eight kind of fashion. And in so doing, they would announce the promises that they would make to each other under this blood, this blood signifying that if I don't fulfill my promise, then I'm as good as dead. The penalty would be for you to kill me. That's the solemnity of this covenant. Verse 12. And as the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain. See, there was no intention on God's part to leave Abram in the dark or to think in some way, shape, or form that he wouldn't have this full assurance of hope. So he says, I want you, Abram, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there. They'll be afflicted for 400 years, but I'll bring judgment on the nations that they serve. And afterward, they shall come out with great possessions. As for, you, uh, as for yourself, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. So he says, I want you to know this for certain. You'll, you'll have descendants. You'll have a nation. Because that will be the nation out of which one will come and will bless all the families of the earth. Verse 17. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between the pieces. Abram was asleep. He didn't pass between the pieces. He didn't take upon himself this solemn oath, but God took it all on himself. And God went between the pieces. And in essence, was ratifying, confirming his promise by his very life, saying that if I don't do this, I despise myself and I will die. Now, that's absurd, isn't it? But God was going to this length in order to, to ratify his promise so that Abram would know. Because, you see, this was going to be a difficult life of faith and patience that Abram was called to. He was 75 years old, his wife, barren. And he's going to have descendants. Little did he know, I suspected he was going to have to wait 25 years before his son would be born, this son of promise. And so God would wait until he was 100 years old, or 99, before this child was conceived, and 100 before he was actually born. And Abram waited by faith, not perfectly, and he inherited this promise. But it doesn't seem, even at that point in time, that it's secure, or it may seem secure, this promise, 
But then God tests him. Turn to Genesis 22. In verse 1, after these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here am I. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the, mount, the land of Moriah and to offer him uh, there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I tell you. You know this story, I suspect. God was calling Abraham to take his son to this mountain and kill him, sacrifice him. Now, just for God's benefit, understand that there was nobody safer on the face of the planet than Isaac. Because if Abraham obeyed, God would stay his hand. If Abraham disobeyed, the boy would live. So he was fine. So don't worry about him. God wasn't uh, risking him in any way, shape, or form. This isn't a horrible thing. But it's a great test for Abraham. Because he doesn't know. All he knows is this is the child of promise. This is, this is what God has promised me. And while it may be unthinkable for us, unbearable for us, to even think about following God in this instance, for Abraham it was unthinkable that God wouldn't fulfill his promise. And it was unbearable to him to think that he wouldn't obey God's word. And so he went. By faith and patience. And I wonder if the faith and patience over those three days between the time he started out and the time this situation ended wasn't greater upon him than the whole 25 years of waiting between the first promise and the coming of his son. And you know what happened. He takes his son and ties him to the bundled wood for the sacrifice. And he raises his hand to slay him. And God stays his hand and says, Abraham, Abraham. And Abraham stops and says, yes, Lord. He says, don't do this. I know that you trust me. I know that you believe in me. I know that you follow me. So, so don't. And then God goes on in verse 15. The angel, the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son. I will surely bless you. I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and, and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. And so he reiterates the, prob- the promise. But again... God condescends to swear an oath. Why does he do that? Turn back to Hebrews and chapter 6. That's about all our running around today, so you can park in Hebrews chapter 6. Well, no, that isn't true. Sorry. One more. He does that, he says, by verse 17. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath so that by two unchangeable things in which it's impossible for God to lie, that is, a promise and an oath. It's impossible for God to lie when he makes a promise. It's impossible for God to break an oath. So by two things for which it's impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. He's saying, Abraham, you've got to hold fast, and so I'm going to make... I'm going to make it so you can. I'm going to give you the means by which you can hold fast. I've made a promise. I've sworn by an oath. And though the beginning of that promise has come, you've gotten your son. How in the world was Abraham to believe as he looked at this young man to think that from this young man a nation would be birthed and from this nation one would come who would bless all the families of the earth? What kind of faith does that take? 
And so God cemented it with this oath. Uh, Notice how the Apostle Paul describes Abraham's faith and patience. Romans chapter 4 and verse 18. He writes, In hope he, that is Abraham, in hope he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations as he had been told. So shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. And I suspect that it was more than once that Abraham remembered the day that God had made the promise and said, go cut this animal in half. That every time he saw a covenant cut, he'd remember, God made such a promise to me on his own life. And then even after the coming of Isaac and the test, God once again swore by himself. Now the author of Hebrews says that, you know, men swear an oath all the time. And the reason that we have to take oaths is because we lie. We just don't trust each other as well we probably shouldn't. And so when there's really something important that has to be settled, we make people swear by something greater than themselves. So that they bring to witness this thing greater than themselves. And if they lie, that testimony of that one greater than themselves is upon them. And they disgrace this one greater than themselves, not only themselves. And so you find people swearing by the temple or swearing by uh, the souls of their grandchildren or by their mother's grave or by the Bible or by God. But how ridiculous is it for God to swear an oath? Why would he do that? And that's the amazing thing here. The author of Hebrews says, he didn't need to. He's not a liar. There's no reason not to trust him. He must have done it for that purpose in verse 18, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. There is no one who needs more hope than a refugee. I mean, think about what makes a refugee a refugee, a seeker of refuge. It means that where they had been is no longer safe. Where they had been can no longer sustain their life. If they stay where they had been, they'll die. We see that with the hurricane victims. They've been called refugees. Sure they are. They're seeking refuge. Why? Because if they stayed back where they were, they'd die. There's no safety there. There's no provision there. So they moved on with some measure of hope. It wasn't certain hope, but some measure of hope that when they got on that bus or got on that airplane or got on that road, they'd end up in a place where there'd be shelter and at least food. And we see political refugees in times of war. We see social refugees in times of discrimination. We see economic refugees in times of famine, people leaving their home to go to a place where they must flee for their very lives. And you see, that's the way it is when we come to God through Christ. We seek him for refuge. We're refugees in the kingdom of God. Because if we stay where we are, we'll die. There's no provision there. And so we flee the world and its values and rewards 
We flee our own weakness because we know if we stay in ourselves, the best we can hope for is that someday we'll die. We flee our own sinfulness because we know if we stay there, we'll remain under the wrath of God and be condemned forever. And so he says, if you flee to me, interestingly, if you flee from me, to me, that is, if you flee from my wrath to my grace, if you flee from my judgment to my salvation, then you'll have hope. You'll have hope that everything that I've promised is really true. And then he goes on to add this in verse 18. Sorry, verse 19, he says, we have this, you can put in parentheses, hope. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And that is one of the most pregnant sentences in all of the Bible. It will take the author of Hebrews the next at least three chapters, four chapters to unpack it. But it simply means this in the context of our hope, that our hope is as secure as an anchor makes a ship secure. See, the purpose of an anchor isn't just to sit at the bottom of the sea and not move. The purpose of an anchor is to keep the ship from moving. Its purpose is to keep the ship from moving no matter how rough the sea gets. And the hope in the anchor is that it will hold secure and if it's trustworthy, if it holds secure, then the ship will hold secure. And he's saying, listen, our hope is an anchor. It's not moving. And the reason it's not moving is because it's gone behind this curtain. A very significant curtain. The curtain was the curtain in the temple that separated the holy place from the most holy place. And it's gone, this hope, into this little place called the Holy of Holies. And it's in the Holy of Holies that God dwells. The very presence of God. And not only does God dwell there, but He dwells there in grace. He dwells there receiving the blood of a sacrifice that brings forgiveness to all those who believe. And it's Jesus who's gone there into this inner place behind the curtain. And what he's done in the very presence of God is sprinkled his blood as a forerunner on our behalf. Meaning, he's there first, we'll get there, and we'll get there because he'll stay there. And his arm is outstretched to us, a hold of us, keeping us secure no matter how many waves there are. And that, you see, is our very hope. And you say, well, what does that really mean? Well, it means this. It means that because of Jesus, for those who have faith in him, their faith will hold. 
But you say, I, sometimes it's like I have to hope against hope that my faith will hold. You don't understand how weak it is, how shallow it is, how difficult it is at certain times for me to believe. And, and the point is, don't look to your faith. Look to the anchor of your soul. As long as he is there, you are safe. As long as he is there, as long as the anchor stays put, your faith will continue on you will persevere to the end because it's all about the anchor and where he is and he staying in the presence of God on our behalf is what keeps us secure. And you think, well, well, does God hear my prayers? And the answer is, God hears your prayers so long as the anchor stays secure. And you say, well, there's sometimes when I wonder if God really hears my prayers. I pray, and I don't see any results at all. I pray, and it gets frustrating, or, or, or I get disinterested, and then I don't pray at all. Will God really hear my prayers? And the answer is yes, so long as the anchor is secure. Look to the anchor, for he is your hope. And you say, well, are my sins forgiven? I mean, I wonder, uh, I, I sin. Even though I've professed faith in Christ, even though I'm born again, I continue to sin. I wonder, the promise of God, of course, is that he will cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He will renew to us our spirits. He will restore to us the joy of our salvation. I wonder, am I really forgiven? And the answer is yes, so long as our anchor is still in the presence of God on our behalf as our forerunner. Yes, trust your sins are forgiven. But, but, but does God really work in the context of my life, everything for good? Can I, can I really have that hope? Can I really know that, that not a hair will fall from my head without the will of my heavenly Father? Not my heavenly judge, but my heavenly Father. Can I really trust that? Is that really my hope? Because as I look around and I see things happen in my life, I wonder about that. I wonder if good is ever going to come. I wonder if, if God really is in control. I wonder if he's really looking out for me. And the answer is, so long as the anchor of your soul is in the presence of God as a forerunner on your behalf, yes, you are just as secure, you're just as safe, you're just as alive in the presence of God as he who stands on your behalf is alive in the presence of God. And say, so, but when I die, what will happen to me then? Uh, I, I, I've never seen beyond this life. I, I've been told by the Bible that when we die, believers in Christ go and be in the presence of God, but but, but can I have that hope for me? I, I, I've never talked to anybody who died and came back. Is this reality? And the answer is yes. So long as this anchor is in the presence of God, alive on our behalf, as a forerunner for us, we're secure. Because you see, we're as secure as our anchor is permanent. And the scripture says that we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. You know what God's saying today? 
saying, hope in me. Let's pray. Father, I do pray for me and for us that we would be people with great hope, certain hope, full assurance of hope, knowing that it's your desire that we hold fast to that hope, so much so that you've sworn by your own life to fulfill all your promises and given to us Christ in fulfillment that he would be our hope, the very anchor of our souls. And that permanent he would be in your presence on our behalf always pleading our case that we might not be tossed from side to side but that we will hold fast. And this I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand for the benediction. As you do, I remind you of our Sunday school classes uh, coming up. I remind you of our time this evening at 7 for the concerts. Please come. Um, remind you that there are elders available to pray. So please take advantage of that. The response to the benediction is a simple one, but profound. Christ is our hope. Hallelujah. Please receive this as God's benediction. And now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with every good thing for doing his will, working in us that which is well-pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ our Lord. And all God's people said, Christ is our hope. Hallelujah. Hallelujah.